John and Shannon, so amazing to have you here uh, again on the way home. Uh, I'm so excited about today's topic that we're going to get into um, because for the last few months, it, it's you know so much of what people have been talking about uh, in the sector. And we've got uh, two experts, so really, really cool. But before we get into that, we do have a standard question that we ask everyone. And Shannon, I'll start with you. And that is, what does home mean to you? Uh, home means to me, what does home mean to me? It means uh, stability, comfort, safety, um, familiarity. Very cool. Yes. And, and, and well, well said. Um, and listen, I think that's the, the fewest number of words anyone's ever used. So, <laughs> very one concise. Of the best points you got there quick. Thank you. Uh, John? Oh, I'm going to change my my usual answer because this is my third time on the show and I will say that home is where my family is. Oh, and even fewer words, uh, if both, you know, those, all those words you used, uh, Shannon, like stability and John family, that is it. Um, and I think that's when, uh, a few years back when, um, there was an indigenous definition of homelessness. That's what they're saying. It's, it, it was too much about the actual physical structure sometimes and for indigenous people they were saying it's about the land it's about relationships and connection mm -hmm. right and and i think those transfer uh, <laughs> over quite well um now listen although you're both repeat guests maybe we have some first-time listeners we're like who are these individuals and why are they here um uh, so if you just talk a little bit about your journey uh, into this work so people know who uh shannon down and john fox are shannon we'll start with you again Okay, um, so I'm a lawyer um, and I'm the executive director at Waterloo Region Community Legal Services, uh, which is a community legal aid clinic located in Kitchener-Waterloo. So I've been at the clinic for about 10 years, working in the area of poverty law, helping people with issues like homelessness and housing, um, specifically uh, eviction prevention, and um, we do a lot of work with folks who are uh, receiving social assistance, who may have disabilities, mental health disorders, um, substance abuse disorders, um, and helping them to either maintain their, uh, their income or maintain their housing. Uh, prior to that, I was in private practice as a lawyer doing employment litigation. And I got into the area of um, consent and capacity um, advocacy and mental health advocacy. And that was sort of my uh, segue, I guess, from the world of private practice into the legal aid world. So that's how I ended up ultimately at the clinic. Very cool. Yeah, it, it makes total sense. Thanks for that. How about you, Mr. Fox? Well, I, um, I'm a lawyer as well. Uh, I uh, spent uh, seven years at Toronto Community Housing as a lawyer and as its VP of development, and then went back into private practice and work with nonprofits and, and co-ops and sector agencies, mostly on development work. So these, uh, th those two experiences uh, as a public sector lawyer and as a real estate lawyer um, are influ influence how I see the case we're gonna talk about today. And so I'm really, really keen to uh, get into the discussion, Michael. Very cool. I uh, love both of the journeys. And yeah, so let's talk about today's discussion in early 2023. And there was a lot of pre-work before that happened. Uh, but the Ontario Superior Court of Justice decision came down uh, 
where else in the region of Waterloo? And it said the region of Waterloo is not isn't allowed to evict people living in tents on one of its vacant lots at 100 Victoria Street because its shelter system did not have enough beds for people experiencing homelessness. So there's, there's this 51 page decision um, where this uh, justice said a clearing encampments without sufficient shelter space, spaces would infringe on their constitutional rights. Uh, Shannon, I was hoping that uh, you could add some more commentary and color uh, around how this decision came to be, because uh, I did a terrible job in it. Uh, but or in layperson's terms, you know, what does this, what is this, and after, what does this mean? Um, sure. Well, I can, I can start with just a bit of the background. So the um, the encampment in question. Um, became quite prominent last spring. So uh, I think, I believe it, the people had first started living in it sometime in December of 2021. And um, in um, the spring of 2022, it started to grow to, to the point where there was at one point, I believe around 70 people living at the encampment. The region of Waterloo um, uh, posted an eviction notice uh, at the beginning of June. Um, uh, letting people know that they would have to be out of the encampment by the end of June. And when that didn't happen, the region decided to file an application with Superior Court um, to ask the court to issue orders uh, for the eviction. Um, so they were proceeding under a section of the Municipal Act, Section 440. Uh, we don't have to really get into details about that. But at that time, um, we were already involved in um, assisting people at the encampment. And uh, the region actually reached out to us and said, if people need representation, would your clinic be willing to represent them? Um, and it, you know, it wasn't, we weren't um, 100% on board with that at first because uh, most of our, our practice, our law practice is before administrative tribunals, not uh, at the superior court level, which is, uh, you know, a significantly more intensive type of litigation um, than tribunal work. Um, so, yeah, at that point, we decided, yes, uh, yes, we will get involved. Yes, we will represent the people at the encampment. We started working with them. So that was sort of, that's sort of the background. Um, and then the court, the, the hearing took place in November. It was three days of, of argument by lawyers because um, it went by way of application, meaning that most of the evidence went in, um, in paper form, in affidavit form. Um, and so, and then when we got the decision in, in January, um, we, uh, the court decided that um, the proposed eviction by the region of the people living at the encampment uh, would violate their Section 7 charter rights. So that's the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. We had made um, both Section 7 arguments and Section 15 arguments, which is Section 15 is the equality section of the charter. Uh, we weren't successful on the uh, Section 15 equality um, arguments, uh, essentially where we were arguing that the uh, eviction, proposed eviction would have an, a disproportionately um, significant impact on certain uh, subgroups of people living at the encampment, um, mainly uh, women, um, trans folks, and um, Indigenous people. Um, the court did not accept those arguments, but they did find that the Section 7 rights were violated. So uh, essentially it meant that the region was not able to go ahead with the eviction. Um, and there are still people living there at the encampment as of today. 
Well, and, and thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, I, I've got to ask, were you, were you, were you confident going in that, that this was going to be the decision or <laughs> no, not at all? No, no, I would say the opposite. Um, you know, when we, we initially took on the case, like I said, we, we don't have a lot of experience arguing. Like I had had some background arguing before superior court in private practice, but the clinic itself, the work that we do um, tends to be at the administrative tribunal level. So, you know, we don't really have a lot of the supports built into our, our working environment um, to do that kind of work. Um, and we felt that, uh, you know, we were sort of significantly under-resourced and, and the timelines were extremely tight. So the region was pushing hard for a very quick hearing in this matter. So, uh, uh, you know, the application was served at the beginning of July and it ultimately was heard in November. And in that time, uh, we filed a, you know, 1,500 pages of our of a record, uh, which was uh, our clients' affidavits, uh, lay person affidavits, expert affidavits. Um, you know, we there was a whole lot of work that went into getting everything ready in that short time frame, and um, yeah, I don't think we didn't we didn't really know what we were doing when we first started, and. I think we thought, in our minds, we thought, well, it's important that their voices, are, the, the people living at the encampment, that their voices are heard um, in the court process. So, you know, even making sure that we we make that happen is a win. Um, that the delay would be beneficial for people. So it would give them some time to, if they were going to try and find housing or, or alternative accommodation or going to shelter, it would give them, buy them some time. So we thought that would be helpful. Um, but did we think we were going to win? No, we didn't. We, um, you know, I think we felt that the existing case law in Ontario was kind of against us. There were some helpful cases from British Columbia, um, but um, we we certainly felt that it was the odds were not in our favor. It was a bit of David and Goliath too. When I think of a region Waterloo would have uh, a little bit more in the resource department than a community legal clinic too, right? So that it is truly uh, amazing. Uh, John, let's talk about the you know legal implications uh, of this and why was it not appealed? And, and, and of course, Shannon, you can add as well, but you know, much, it, this is, yes, it affected this decision in Waterloo, but it's much broader than that. Well, for sure. But first let me say, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know where you were at when you started this, Shannon, but you ended right, and that's what really that's what really counts. So congratulations, um, you, um, uh, Shannon, was there the whole time. Whereas I, like a lot of people, sort of learn about this from the news when it actually happens, and unlike other people, then sort of dig into it and actually read read the case. And when you first look at it, you think 50 pages is long, but then you hear Shannon talk about 1,500 pages, and you're like, well, that's a pretty pretty good bargain for my reading. Um, it, it's a, um, it, I think it's a, it's a, a really important case in, in several uh, res respects. And I, I just, I want to start with one thing I found un unusual about it when comparing reading to other case law that one reads particularly as a, as a real estate lawyer. And that's the extent to which the judge actually goes and talks about the lives of the people in front of him. And there's a, there's a, a real humanity to that and a real warmth. Um, what's kind of funny is when I've been talking about it with other other lawyers, I've come across a couple people who knew uh, Mr. Justice Valenti as a lawyer and insisted on telling me that he's, you know, he's not a particularly, you know, I shouldn't think of him as a particularly liberal guy, and and yet 
uh, and when you read the case, the case is driven by the application of logic to the law in Canada today. He does make judgment choices along the way, but he comes out with with this with this decision, which is now law in Canada. So, sorry, excuse me, there's now law in Ontario. Um, when I when you when I think about people who talk about it, there's also a lot of talk in housing advocacy circles. And because of the nature of uh, municipal commentators, you won't really hear you know, municipal um, in-house lawyers going and saying this, what they, they think the implications of the decision might be, but there's clearly significant implications on municipalities. And so when you, when you sort of think about it in terms of the housing system, which you, you and I have talked about on this show before, uh, Michael, one of the messages here, there's there's a real sort of uh, shock to the system that comes out of this because wh where there's pressure in the municipality to deal uh, with the, with an encampment, uh, there's now pressure back through this case to say, well, what are you doing to uh, create long-term solutions? And one of the things that's really remarkable about it is the long-term solution is actually easier to identify than the short-term solution here. So because it takes time to generate housing and it takes even takes time to generate additional uh, shelter options. Absolutely. Shannon, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think we're grappling here in the region with the the short term and the long term implications right now, because like I said, the the encampment still exists. It's one of many encampments that exist in Kitchener Waterloo um, on, on other pieces of public property. So it's 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 not unique. Um, it's the only one that was part of the case, but certainly the you know, I think the the region is obviously restrained in what they can do with the other encampments that exist in a region because of the decision. But, um, you know, it, I, I don't think the region's intentions in terms of um, trying to voluntarily move people off the property at this point haven't really changed. Um, but, and we're seeing them, we're seeing that the region is trying to come up with some short-term solutions. So we actually have a, um, a managed, what they're calling a hybrid shelter outdoor shelter um, being built, um, which is small sort of tiny cabins and a central kitchen um, bathroom um, facility that will be um, staffed by people and there will be services and things like that. So that's a new, that's a new interim housing project that the region's come up with since this case um, sort of has been working its way through the court. So, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that became apparent to me that as we were developing our arguments about the both the accessibility of shelter beds in the region and the like the number of shelter beds, as those arguments were being developed, there was a lot of movement in the region's housing department to come up with new housing solutions as the case was going on. Because I think at that point, they could sort of see that the writing was on the wall. We were talking about you know, we have a point in time count um, from September 2021 that said we have, you know, approximately 1,100 people who are um, unhoused. And uh, at the time of when the when the materials were filed, I believe the region had around 400 shelter beds. And that included, you know, beds that were strictly um, to be used for youth purposes. So no one over 25 would be able to get uh, access to those beds some COVID beds, things like that. So there was a big gap between the number of unhoused people and the number of um, shelter beds. And the region immediately started to try and to, to narrow that gap. And I don't know that that's necessarily the, the right answer in the long term. I think, you know, what we heard from our clients 
was that a lot of them had been in shelter, had been in and out of shelter multiple times. A lot of the people who are at the encampment have been chronically unhoused for months or years. And so, you know, they weren't interested in going back into shelter. Um, that's why they were at the encampment living in a tent. They were looking for something that provided them with what they felt was more stability, um, more autonomy, um, you know, more control over their their surroundings. So it's it's a, you know, I think it's a difficult issue that every, I think every municipality across Ontario is, is grappling with right now. How do we get enough housing built quickly enough to address the growing um, homelessness problem that we have in the province and in the country. Yeah, and as well as the different types of options, right? I think quite quite often too, all right? So people will read headlines and they'll demonize municipalities, uh, regions and say, you know, they're, they're just meaning people, they're bringing in the police, they're clearing these things out. And what they don't know in the background is it's been months of outreach workers and others going in, chatting, chatting, chatting. But there comes a time where they're saying, all right, we've done all this at some point. You know, this is a public space that we're trying to, and so they, they clear it out. But it is around options to say, hey, we've got, listen, we've got a bunch of spaces, but what the uh, the um, clients are saying, I don't feel comfortable going to a shelter. I was hurt. I had a bad experience. My stuff got taken. So it is about options. Or the option you're asking me is, you know, way across town. I don't know anyone there. My doctor's across here. So, so we have to try to provide various different options, and that doesn't happen. Uh, overnight, so it's a, you know, it's a very, uh, very tricky situation. Now, I have a, I have a question for the two of you around. Um, this is public space, right? Public land. If an encampment is on private land owned by a developer, same rules apply, or, or, or not so much? No. So the short answer is no. The same rules don't apply. So the charter only applies to government action. Um, so a private landowner um, posting a, a, a notice, a trespass notice would not be um, covered or would not be affected by the charter arguments. That's, it's good to know. And here's why I asked that question. So the reverb of this decision too, of course, had people all across the country saying, okay, what do we do? How's this going to affect our region? Where uh, my organization, Blue Door, is situated in the York region. Most of the encampments are actually on private land. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, right next to uh, our men's emergency housing program, there's the land next door that if, so what happens at Blue Door, if you actually, if there's no space or if your um, uh, something happens and you can't stay at Blue Door anymore, your options are outside of the region, Peel or Toronto. And many won't, won't do that. They won't travel. They'll go, they walk about a hundred feet to the encampment next door on the land. And that developer has said, I'm not going to develop that land for a long time, not really a concern. I, I, I really don't want to make anything of it. Uh, so so it remains, right, in the region. The same, well, if that developer's okay with it, the police, I mean, they haven't asked us to do anything. So these encampments go. Now, the other piece to this, uh, and, and I think that, you know, people celebrated this, and it's something to be celebrated, it's great, and it, and it kind of pushes us to, to do more. But what we don't want to come out of this too is that we just need better encampments, right? Like. It, do you know what I mean? We want the message to be we need better housing options and encampments are not necessarily part of that, that broader solution. Um, but let's not shut those down until we have those other options. Is that, you know, what are your thoughts around that? That makes me a little nervous because it's around the, the better sleeping bag or a better tent as being a solution instead of housing. 
And we don't want the general public to start celebrating that. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. You go ahead, John. I want to say to do I want to answer two questions there, actually, because there's some of the stuff you said before. I, I was hoping to comment on, Michael, relating to property rights and stuff like that, because after all, I am a real estate lawyer, so it's hard for me not to notice that stuff. Um, so two things. First, like one of the implications of the case for municipalities, to my mind, is the ability to deal with their land in a way that that uh, that they're that they're used to. So, for example, if we took that land, which is not a park and not a dedicated highway, and the municipality says, I'm going to sell the land to private interest in order to even generate money to build a shelter, on the strength of that case, I'd save a pretty good um, case to stop that that sale because you know the intent of what's going to happen. And so there is a, there is a potential restriction on how municipalities deal with their property. The, the the private person um, doesn't have the same issue because the charter doesn't apply, and uh, as Shannon said, and and probably the uh, the human rights code, which does apply to a private actor, um, you'd have more challenging challenge with because the equality argument under Section 15, which is the more analogous argument to the human rights code. Um, didn't uh, didn't fly in that particular case, but I I can tell you that I'm pretty sure the developer you're talking about hasn't talked to their own lawyer about their own liabilities for the things that are happening on that on that land, and so when we're when we're talking about you know the message should not be by the way I think it's really broad agreement on this certainly in, in the in the in the housing sector that that and the people I've talked to is is the the message should be we need to worry a lot about about better housing uh, options, particularly supportive housing options where people uh, are getting help uh, in the context of, of their own uh, housing and then potentially moving along a curve to more permanent independent living and so on, uh, where, it's, where it's, it's possible. Because in the back of our minds, like Shannon was talking about, this is not the only place in Ontario, that's true, but it is definitely not the only place in the world. And the, like the Americans are seeing encampments where a after a while, it's, it's a major impact on the surrounding communities, uh, both individuals who are, who are living near the encampments and also businesses that are or were near the encampments. And those are things which will play on the minds of municipalities. So when you're looking at this as a municipality, you're like, okay, I can't build it fast enough. So a lot of uh, and, and for that matter, they probably can't afford to build it, even if I could build it fast enough. So you need help from from senior levels of government, which is why I said there's a real shock to the housing system that comes out of this. Um, so the, those interim measures become really uh, critical. And you mentioned one thing, which I think is is an unanswered question for me. If if the if Kitchener goes, the camp says, I've, I now have a, a, a family of two and I can shelter you together. But that shelter is in London. Does, do you have the right to say no? And if you say no, is 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 there a change? I'm interested in chance this, but if, is there a change 
in the nature of your rights. Because to a certain extent, the, the case says the bylaw is unconstitutional until you've done these things. And then it says you can come back. But in a sense, it's like it's unconstitutional until it's not. So mm-hmm. those are the those are the um, things that are playing on play on my mind quite a bit, and I, I appreciate that I get to play armchair lawyer here because I wasn't there, and so <laughs> Shannon gets to be the cool lawyer uh, between the two of us because she was there. So I'd, I'd be really interested in hearing um, uh, her thoughts on that. Yeah, so I mean, there's a number of things that I I want to address. Like I, I agree with Michael that you know more encampments or or encampments are not are not an ideal solution for homelessness right like obviously in a country like canada people should not have to be spending winter in canada living in a tent that's it's a terrible um a terrible thing to have to endure so but but our case really says like when when someone doesn't have an option like when they don't have a choice and and i'll talk a little bit about what choice means and 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 that idea of you know how the court dealt with that but that the the displacement or eviction is really taking someone from a very precarious position and and removing them from that into something even worse right so there's no certainly no we weren't arguing that this is like an ideal situation that everyone should be allowed to to do this forever we're just saying just don't when someone doesn't have somewhere else to go that's a better option don't force them into a worse option on the issue of the choice yeah i think you know one of the things that the judge had to grapple with was the region was saying you know on any given night we have um you know x number of empty beds in the shelter system so people are choosing the region framed it as people are choosing to live in a tent um because they don't like the rules in the shelters or they don't they don't want to have to go to Cambridge if they're in Kitchener. Or they don't want to have to make the trek somewhere else. Um, and the judge rejected that. He said that that in his view, and uh, you know, when he analyzed that, the people had valid reasons for um, for choosing not to be in shelter. Um, for example, if you had you know, if you had a partner, if you had a pet, and there weren't spaces available for you, or or you didn't feel safe um, and you had had a negative experience in shelter where you had experienced violence or um, harassment and you didn't feel safe in a shelter, but you felt safe at the encampment, that those were valid personal choices that people were entitled to make. And in, in fact, under the charter, we recognize that like when you look at the right to life, liberty and security of the person, the court has said that, you know, when you're looking at um, liberty and security of the person, that part of the security of the person and liberty is the ability to make personal choices about your 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 living conditions, right? That that none of us, like we all get to do that. Like I get to choose where I, you know, I have I have a lot more economic mobility. So I have a choice where I can live. No one, no one can tell me I have to live in, you know, an apartment, you know, a particular apartment or that I have to move if, if I'm, if I'm able to do that financially. But we seem to, you know, we seem to have a different sort of, there's often a different narrative when it comes to people living in poverty, that somehow they should have to accept what's offered. Um, without, you know, being able to uh, exert some personal autonomy about that. Shannon, I call that the, the good enough theory that I I find often in the sector, right, where we think, well, this is this is good good enough. And I often, because I've been in the sector a long time, will get sent, you know, things about, look at this super cool sleeping bag that turns into a jacket that turns into, and I would say, like, we don't need a better 
sleeping bag or jacket or a better tent or whatever. We actually need like housing. And that's great because people are like that's good enough. It like saves them, keeps them warm for a night. I understand it. The intentions are good. But as Canadians, I think sometimes we think that's okay. And it's even the the out of the colds. We run one of those too. And we're we were saying it, it was it was separate for a long time because that was the end game. Caught food back outside. And, and so there was no like the, the end game wasn't good. And now it's kind of wrapped into a system where housing uh, supports are wrapped in. We're seeing some of those long-term people find housing. Um, interesting too, when we talk about options and how long it takes, there was a recently an article in the Toronto Star about a gentleman, I think he'd been out for 25 years, living in a tent through all the winters. And he finally has said, because of his health issues, I, I, I'm ready, I'm ready to go in. And, they, and there was a celebration of this, but if you read kind of further down the article, He's on a waiting list now, and they, they anticipate it will take four to six years for him to find the housing that or get the housing that because he has some health supports that he needs, right? So, so you know, he could end up dying before he actually gets the support he needs. So it, it's it's very tough. We've got to move faster, um, and we have to have options. And I think everyone's entitled uh, to those options. It's not a one size fits. Like even in the sector as well, and homelessness for the longest time. Uh, we were kind of lumping everyone together with their needs. And then youth would say very different needs. Like <laughs> housing for youth looks different. Housing for seniors looks different. Housing for people with developmental disabilities looks a little different. Um, and so there's not a one size fits all around that. Um, I want to talk about what happens from here. So we have this historic you know, thing happen. People are, are scrambling a little bit. Municipalities are saying, what does that mean for me? What happens from here? Like, what, what's, gonna, what's happening next? What do you think uh, the ramifications long-term are, are around this? Uh, Shannon, we'll start with you and then, then go to John. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess my hope is that what happens next is that we have some really serious conversations, like John said, at all levels of government, like higher levels of government, the provincial government, the federal government, about... Um, how dire the situation is in in communities in Ontario and across the and across the country um, that people you know when they're you know we're, we see it on a daily basis when our clients get evicted from their rental housing because they have arrears or you know landlords own use applications or n13 you know rent evictions um, they don't have options. And, you know, we say to people, are you on the housing list? Yeah, I'm, I've been on it for years. I'm like at number 5,000 on the list. So I think that, you know, maybe some of the solutions that used to work in the past that were, you know, were serving the community just aren't working anymore because the the depth of homelessness is, is so much worse. Um, so, you know, I think we have to, I think that you know I don't I don't have all the answers, but I just know that we have to do something different than what we're doing right now. Um, I don't think necessarily more shelter beds is the answer. Maybe more interim housing options where people have that supported piece, um, and there's some interim housing until we can find them more permanent housing. Something along those lines is the answer. But I think I think what's happening, like John said, is there's a lot of conversations happening within municipalities about what to do. Um, I was just in Kingston, Ontario, and they have a fairly large encampment in the city core. 
um, that they were proposing to evict. And um, the paper ran a story about our case on the front page. And now they're not evicting um, at this moment. Uh, I think they've held off on their eviction action and they're, you know, they're talking to the legal representatives um, who are advocating on behalf of the people living in the encampment right there and trying to come up with some sort of solution. Like, is there is there a protocol that they could develop where they, you know, commit to working with people to try and voluntarily find them other places to live if that encampment is unsafe and, and needs to be cleared. But I also think if you read the decision, there's some interesting um, uh, stuff about mitigation, right? Like what municipalities can do to mitigate the risks in encampment by helping people, you know, um, make sure that they don't have fire hazards in their tents, that they have, a, you know, bathroom facilities, that there are um, pest control measures being taken place. So I think there's, you know, there's also those types of issues that municipalities don't, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, either we're evicting or we're ignoring you. Um, there's a middle ground there where you're supporting people. Yeah, I, I think if you don't have an encampment uh, in your municipality, uh, you need to close your eyes to pretend that there is one and start working out what you're going to do um, so that you have it have it straight. And I, and I think that means having to grapple with challenging questions like how much of how much of the relocation or sheltering can I do in neighboring communities? Who do I have who can actually engage with people who are on the site? The, the, the work that the City of Toronto did through its ombudsman's office, you know, which is pretty frank stuff on good and not so good interactions in, in those situations is kind of mandatory reading if you're, if you're developing that kind of uh, policy. And I do think you kind of have to say out loud that, and I know municipalities do say this out loud, but they cannot carry, at the municipal level, you cannot solve this problem. So there, there was a time when we were, um, building housing at a more uh, at a faster pace through more significant public intervention, and I know that we will often hear about mm -hmm. like the the we, we was at a seminar on the housing accelerator fund not that long ago, and it's great to put the emphasis on the B when you say four billion dollars, but when you divide that up by a hundred thousand units, it's not um, it, it doesn't create a unit on an, on its own. Like we we go through those pro formas, and they're that doesn't cut it. So you need, you're stacking up all kinds of stuff to do it. And the, the nonprofits and co-ops and private sector guys who are doing it, it's not an easy go. So, so if there's not, uh, if you're not leading into that, uh, then there won't be the money to deal with this at this, at the end of the housing spectrum that we're, we're talking about today. We have a, t the last time I was on the show, we were talking about the government's efforts through bill 23, which is largely aimed at, a totally different part of the housing spectrum. And so in order to get at any of this, I think we need both uh, the, the strong policy framework for municipalities to act within, uh, but also uh, real intervention at this level in cash terms to create housing options, which would be different in, in which I suspect um, uh, Michael and the group at Blue Door, for instance, like the, you'd have a lot of input in how that kind of thing can, would, would run. Those are my thoughts. Well, uh, thank you both. I think, you know, we've been talking about encampments for a long time. Shannon, to your point of, of that kind of, where's the middle ground, right? Either, and I look even in, um, I believe in Kitchener Waterloo, a better tent city we've had on here as well. That was to some people, you know, one group celebrating that, look at what we did. And another group saying, that's horrifying. And what, like, 
get them housing. Why are you building tiny structures and do it like that was on private land, right? That was, and mm -hmm. so that was different. And I, I like having both points. We've had uh, Ian DeYoung on this from Orcode, who's written kind of a book about different ways to kind of tackle and work through. We talked with Eleni Farah, who, who goes to be a spouse and chats with him about different strategies to take when approaching encampments. So there's there's work out there on how to do this. Uh, we had a gentleman from Calgary from uh, the uh, drop-in center there, uh, who they have 900 people in an encampment next door. They worked hand-in-hand -hand with police and individuals and housed them, and kind of that went fairly smoothly. So there, there is some, like, there are some good examples and, and good best practices and those types of things on, on how to approach this. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention it's not just about housing either. Um, we know just recently the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness were a partner in producing this um, podcast. They pushed really hard in the last federal budget for uh, a housing prevention uh, benefit, uh, basically incomes. Right, mm -hmm. and they, I think in their their white paper they talked about eighty to eighty five percent of people in the shelter system would not be there if they simply had the income to afford the housing that's available. Um, you know, so so your more shelter spaces. No, I think if we actually had the incomes people needed and more affordable housing, absolutely, mm -hmm. as countries like Finland have shown, we don't need uh, more shelter spaces. But income plays a big part, and that is a bit of a quicker turnaround than the, the amount of housing we need, um, we have to, they have to go hand in hand. And unfortunately that yeah. didn't happen uh, in this budget, but, but absolutely, I think there's a lot of questions that, that come out of this. Uh, and there are a lot of resources out there to help communities through this and, and they're going to need them. I think that's a great point. The income part, because we certainly saw that with mm -hmm. CERB, that CERB um, prevented a lot of people from losing their housing during COVID. So adequate income makes a huge difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that has really been jumping out at me recently is just the, the lack, like the number of actual purpose-built rentals that we have in the region is shrinking. So we're seeing, you know, there's certainly lots of development and building going on, but not a lot of it is purpose-built rentals. And the purpose-built rentals that are in our region, um, you know, we're getting a lot of, like a lot of them are older stocks. So then we end up seeing uh, rent evictions and sometimes conversion to condos. So that's, you know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is to that, but that certainly is, is a, a trend that I think is not helping the situation. Yeah, okay, but message there to municipalities as as well as they it is it is much cheaper to try and hold on to existing affordable, net sort of naturally affordable units as as Steve Palmer likes to call them, uh, than it is to build new. Uh, I, I have a, a a client right now who is involved in doing that, and I think the the ask of the municipality is something in the order of fifty thousand dollars a door, which is not not even close to what it would cost to build new. Right. Yeah. And I mean, we, we had an example recently where, um, um, a, you know, a residential complex that had been uh, developed using government funding 15 or 20 years ago um, was coming to the end of its lifespan of the agreement that was in place that the developer had been sold. And then the, the tenants were all getting, um, asked to sign N11s to move out because they wanted to to repurpose it into condominium dwelling. So yeah, I agree with you. Like it would be nice if we could stop, you know, if those sort of, if there were some incentives or policies uh, frameworks in place that would maybe 
prevent that from happening because when we see those those really good you know housing stock getting lost it's just it's really hard on the community i mean thank you for bringing that up i've heard numbers like 15 to 1 crumbling inf infrastructure lost through the, through the private sector for every new build there's whole new 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 let's build a supply to john's we're gonna hang on to what we have and yours too um and i think they're seeing that a bit you see some of those funds toronto has this uh mural funding right now that's allowing nonprofits to buy some of those and that came out of a push uh through parkdale right through that land trust saying hey like there's all these buildings around us that we're going to lose and these community members we're going to lose their housing help us to buy that we need the capital to do it so you're seeing it a little bit people are, are, are kind of seeing that but yeah you know it's not just about building new because we need we're, we're losing too many of the private sector i think tim richter said we have less affordable housing now than we did in 2015. so we're, we're we're losing ground even though we're building a lot and and uh we need to do both and we need groups like uh, yours, Shannon, uh, and Waterloo that do incredible work with your eviction prevention program. So people are staying in the homes because we know much harder to find new homes than uh, and much easier to keep them in the homes they have uh, currently. So, so yeah, thank you both uh, for coming on. Uh, this, is, this is incredible. It's so, so fun to talk about, so interesting. And I think, you know, uh, we always try and, and make this podcast um, all about awareness and education. You've done that. You've helped us. You've educated me, and, and hopefully our, our listeners will get a lot out of this. Of because we'll we'll read this, but not really know what are the implications. What does it mean? I think you've done a great job of helping us uh, wrap our heads around that and understand that. Uh, thank you both for for the work you do uh, in the sectors. Incredibly impactful, and uh, so appreciated. Thanks, thank Michael. That was uh, another amazing episode. Uh, just, it was huge. And Shannon is so humble. I mean, to take that on and to win uh, the amount of time she didn't have to prepare and her and her small but mighty team, uh, incredible outcome with huge uh, reverb out there uh, for the future of encampments. And for John to come on and really, what I love about John Fox too is, is he does, he's able to take all the legal talk and really make it understandable for common folk like me uh, and, and, you know, others in the sector. So incredible. I hope you learned something. I certainly did. That's what this podcast is all about. We'll see you next time on The Way Home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.